The Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay, and it's great to have you back again to listen to a wonderful episode with a wonderful guest. But before we get to that guest, we'd just like to remind you, please subscribe to the show, please follow, and please share with your friends. Always a great story in all of these podcasts for someone you may know. Okay, moving on to this week's guest. This week's guest is Dr. Jennifer Anderson, MD. Dr. Jennifer Anderson is a medicine physician born and raised in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. She graduated from the University of Manitoba in 2011 and completed her residency in family medicine. Her journey into the world of cannabinoid medicine began four years ago when her son, who suffered from intractable epilepsy, failed all conventional treatments and she had no choice but to close her practice. Witnessing her son seizing multiple times per hour, Dr. Anderson knew the situation was dire. However, after trying CBD as a last resort, she was amazed to see dramatic results and her son's condition began to improve. He had been seizing three to four times per hour, spending most of his time in the hospital due to chronic lung disease caused by aspirations and seizures. But since the CBD trial, he has thrived and for three years there have been no hospital visits for seizures. Inspired by this transformation, Dr. Anderson decided to explore cannabinoid medicine further. Since 2017, she's been working with patients of all ages who have exhausted all other treatment options, giving them the opportunity to explore the benefits of cannabinoids. The results have been nothing short of amazing. Dr. Anderson is now dedicated to advising patients, colleagues and the industry about the potential cannabinoids. The documentary, Anything Can Happen, sheds light on Dr. Anderson's personal journey with her son Nicholas, who battled intractable epilepsy and found hope through CBD oil. The film also showcases the challenges faced by other children under Dr. Anderson's care, including Vincent, Emma and Levi. It is a powerful moving story of love, compassion and dedication amidst a medical establishment often focused on the politics of cannabis rather than the well-being of patients. Dr. Anderson has also contributed an essay titled You Can't Stop the Waves, but you can learn to surf to the book Courage in Cannabis. This compilation of stories written by doctors, lawyers, patients, caregivers, entrepreneurs and activists aims to inspire and motivate others. The book shares tales of courage and determination as individuals choose cannabis as a life-changing option despite its previous illegality throughout North America. Apart from her written contributions, Dr. Anderson has appeared on numerous podcasts and TV shows, including Montel Jordan, spreading her message of hope and healing through cannabinoid medicine. Dr. Anderson's passion lies in helping patients of all ages globally access the support they need. She firmly believes that education should be available to everyone, regardless of location, empowering individuals to make informed choices about their health care. Okay, so welcome to the show, Dr. Jennifer Anderson, all the way from Canada. It's a pleasure to have you on, Dr. Jen. Thank you so much for having me. You are in a place called Manitoba in Canada, aren't you? It's a few hours of a difference between me. I'm in Spain, in Alicante, and there's a bit of a difference. Yes, I'm in the middle of Canada. It's a place called Winnipeg, and if you threw a dart into the middle of Canada, that's where I would be. Um, We have drastic temperatures, so right now we're in the summertime, and it's uh, we we have a Celsius system, so we go to plus 40, even above, and then we go to minus 40 and below in the winter. So we have a huge range of temperatures here. That's quite interesting because, you know, obviously in Europe, we use the Celsius system and 
here today in Alicante, it was 35 degrees Celsius. So it's quite warm and quite humid. But normally when we think of the United States, we kind of assume that Canada has a Fahrenheit system too, but that's not the case, is it? That is not the case. No, we're Celsius as well. Okay, that's interesting. So yeah, because it can be a little confusing when, you know, people say, oh, it's 102 and you're like, what's that? Is it 50 or, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes, I was just in Europe and I was very happy that it was all Celsius because it makes sense. It was all Celsius. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's quite interesting. And so normally in that neck of the woods where you live, do you have harsh winters as well and very harsh summers? We do. Yes, we have. Um, a lot of days where kids can't go to school because of the snowstorms, um, we have difficulty getting to work and everything shuts down a little bit in the winter. And then in the summer, things shut down as well when it gets too hot. Right. I understand. Okay. And for you, I know you, you live there. Have you always lived in that area? I mean, you, you, I know you went to the university of Manitoba. So was that something you grew up in that area and you're, you know, you, you never moved away. You always stayed there. Yes. I was born in Winnipeg and I stayed here and I still live here, but I travel a lot. It is actually a really great place to live just in terms of um, cost of living um, compared to other places in Canada. And my whole family's here. So I've just stayed. For you, going back a little bit, I, I know that in 2011, you graduated from the University of Manitoba. So was it always a dream of yours to be a doctor or, you know, did you have other kind of aspirations when you were a teenager of what you wanted to do? You know, I have a, a little bit of an interesting upbringing um, that, you know, we don't normally talk a lot about. But, you know, I grew up actually in government housing with my mom on welfare. So I really have a lot of um, family members or anybody that I knew that went to university. I think it was in middle school where I started learning about the body and I thought, man, this would be really cool if you could have a job where, you know, you were in healthcare. And I actually had a mentor at that time uh, that was actually a nurse I babysat for, and she was an ER nurse. And so she took me to work with her and, um, you know, that kind of grew my interest. Um, and then, you know, when I graduated from high school, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I started taking some courses and, you know, that led me into, uh, into medicine eventually. I think they call that government brats, don't they? The, when you're a, a government child, like you move around a lot, don't you? Uh, yeah, we did. Yeah. Here, you know, you're never guaranteed government housing. So from the time I born until probably about 12 was lots of different places so do you think your childhood affected your decision to go into medicine in that way because you know sometimes how we grow up and whether it's the traumas of that or the joys whatever you have can affect and what you want to become in later life so do you think there was a, a period when you were younger that something was instilled in you to become a doctor no um no, not at all. Um, I do know, though, now that my upbringing really makes me into the doctor that I am today um, in um, many different ways. I relate to patients very differently. And I think it took a while for me to grow into that because initially in med school, I felt so out of place. Um, you know, a lot of my colleagues grew up in very different situations with families that were doctors and I didn't. And uh, so a while for me to sort of find my place in medicine. 
And, you know, medicine is quite a complicated thing when you think about it, because even through your story and what happened with you and Nicholas, it's kind of one of these things where people, you know, go along a certain path with taking medicines and they don't question it. But then when other things come up, they they're forced to question it or for their own reasons. So I think sometimes there are some amazing doctors out there, but now the role of the doctor has kind of evolved into kind of a pharmacist and, and a little bit. Like we always talk about how the doctor doesn't really have the same hands-on approaches. I know in Europe anyway, as they used to do. So being a doctor now is different to being a doctor 20 years ago, isn't it? It's very different. Um, the patients are different. The system is different. And definitely the doctors are different too. For you, when you were training to be a doctor, you know, did you kind of have any specialty in mind or you thought I want to do family medicine or you weren't sure? Did you when you began as a doctor, did you think I want to do heart surgery? I want to do this. What was kind of your plan? I didn't have a plan. I liked everything. And so when I went to medical school, like everything I liked, I went through a phase where I wanted to do cardiac surgery and I spent a whole couple of weeks in that. And, you know, then I went up north and I loved it and I did Emerge and I loved it. I did ICU and I loved it. So, you know, I actually was was thinking about doing emergency and then I went up and, and did some things uh, in family medicine and realized I could do a whole lot more in family medicine if I went out of the, the big uh, city. And so I ended up at the last minute changing and going into family medicine. And then when I graduated, I went uh, to a rural community and I started doing uh, hospital, ER and uh, clinic. And I did obstetrics. Uh, so I did everything, which I loved. And that was um, sort of, you know, my my journey. Because I'm sure it's quite kind of complicated for some people. They're not sure what they want to do. But then for you, you, you know, you obviously decided then you wanted to do family medicine. And was that something that came to you right away? Or was there something that influenced you to work in family medicine? Um, well, I did a, a couple of weeks up north um, in a rural community. And then I realized how much the family doctors do when they're not in the big city. And I actually really had a suspicion that in the next, you know, 10 years, um, you know, if I chose a specialty, I'd be kind of locked into just a few different things. But if I chose family medicine, it would be more fluid and I'd have more flexibility, which is more uh, in my personality. So, okay, let's move on to Nicholas, you know, because he's kind of the epicenter of the story. So how old is Nicholas now? Nicholas is 11. 11 now. So when Nicholas was born, you know, I know that you you were given a diagnosis and they told you certain things. So was that something as a doctor when you hear those things? Because every parent, you know, dreads hearing certain things and certain conditions when the child is in the womb and even when the child is born. So as a doctor for you, do you find that you when you hear these things and you can't change them, it, it's very frustrating because you're in that field? That's difficult? I did find it very difficult. Um, you know, we didn't really know the extent of his brain injuries. Um, he, I had something called twin-twin transfusion syndrome. And so he was the, the uh, donor twin, meaning he was giving all his blood flow to his brother. So I had intrauterine surgery to um, save um, either of them, and they both survived. And they weren't expecting Nicholas to survive. 
Um, and then when he was born, they thought everything was fine. And then they did an MRI that showed his whole brain developed abnormally. And, uh, you know, my initial uh, discussion with the neurologist was, you know, they called us in at like 6 p.m. at night and said, oh, by the way, the MRI is back and he'll probably never do anything except have reflexes. And like, I just thought it was the most horrible thing that you would call a family in in the evening and like, just tell them that. And like, it was horrible. Like my experience in a lot of ways, there was some good aspects, but there was a lot of things that were just eye openers, you know, and definitely influence how I talk to patients. So, yeah. So, and the thing about it is, you know, when we talk about doctor's bedside manner, it kind of goes back to who they are as a person. And even I suppose some good doctors can get frustrated with the system and they can get frustrated with how people are and they change their manner. And it's a shame, you know, when you're dealing with the doctor and you expect, you know, patience and you expect a little compassion, but sometimes it's not there. And, and sometimes the timing of their words is not adequate. I definitely, you know, I was always more of a compassionate doctor, I think, due to my upbringing. But after those experiences, I definitely relate to families differently. I, I work full time emergency. So I do deal with a lot of, you know, bad situations. Uh, and I work in a rural community. So, you know, this can involve anything from a pregnant lady to a hundred and something year old person. So, you know, um, giving bad news and different and dealing with patients who are upset is not something that I shy away from. Um, I definitely um, have ways to sort of deal with those patients that I've learned from my own experience. So when Nicholas was born, I know he had the, you said the twin twin infusion and cerebral palsy, but epilepsy too. Was it like a mixture or was it one more of the other? So cerebral palsy is just a word that describes um, like a brain abnormality that's associated with clinical findings that are usually motor uh, or speech problems. And it has to happen in a certain time frame and it has to be diagnosed before age two. So Nicholas had a brain injury that was intrauterine. It resulted in motor issues and him being nonverbal. And so that's classified as a cerebral palsy. Um, because of his brain abnormalities, it put him at a higher risk of seizures um, because the connections just weren't uh, created properly. And so when he, you know, early on, we know now that he was having seizures around six months of age. But by the time he was three, it, it became more obvious. And that's when the diagnosis sort of happened. So um, they are two separate diagnoses. Uh, cerebral palsy is like a, a diagnosis based on the imaging and the uh, clinical findings. Epilepsy is the seizures uh, that are related to the brain abnormalities. Okay, I understand. Yes. And when he started getting those seizures, you know, and you were, you know, tracking them and, and keeping records of them, and then it started getting worse. I know then you had to, you know, pull back from your work and close your clinic. So was that something kind of that happened as he got towards three years of age and you, you, it was potentially more trouble to deal with and you had to make that decision? Definitely. When he was three, things became really bad. And that's when we started really pushing neurology for a diagnosis. Um, I think that was really frustrating because I was in the ER researching and that, and I, I had a diagnosis. It was electrical uh, status up in sleep. 
you know, and I kept going to the neurologist and saying, I think he's having seizures. And they basically said, no, he's not, you know, <laughs> anyways, I finally um, went and they did a five day home EEG and they called us back and said, oh yeah, he has electrical status, epilepsy and sleep. And I'm like, I just felt like I was being treated like a dumb family doctor, you know, and it was so frustrating. Anyways, then I asked to see a seizure specialist. So then we kind of got on the right track. Um, and then, you know, he started on medications and he actually like settled down quite a bit for about a year. And then in uh, 2016, in the spring is when things just started picking up. And then, um, you know, it was just, we, we couldn't get out of hospital. And then in the fall of 2016, I basically had to quit my clinic because I was a single mom with three kids and like the twins. Um, and I just couldn't get to work. Um, I was in the hospital all the time. Yeah. One point you said there was when you were talking to the doctor and saying it could be this, it's kind of, it, it's from another perspective. It's like when people, you know, check on Google and it tells them they could die, whatever condition they have. But people, you know, nowadays go into the doctor with more information. So it must be pretty frustrating when you're a doctor and you, you know lots of information and you research things well. But sometimes maybe it's hard to have the conversation because now you're the patient's mother and you're not, they're not looking at you as the doctor. It's kind of a frustrating situation, isn't it? It is. You know, I mean, people always get stigmatized. And I think as a doctor mom, you get kind of placed into the category of being just hyper vigilant and, you know, thinking everything is a, a thing, right? Because I think then you just sort of start to see things everywhere. Um, so, you know, trying to maintain um, just your, um, right sort of thinking about everything is hard as a parent because you don't want to over call things and you don't want to complain too much but you know um my initial experiences with nicholas i wasn't as aggressive um but as years went on and i realized i'm actually i am actually usually right <laughs> you know there's something wrong and i've said there's something wrong yeah and they keep telling me there isn't but i was right and the neurologist was wrong like you know and i just got more and more frustrated with the system and so then when it came to cannabis i was like no like you're gonna kill my kid and i'm not gonna let you <laughs> like you know and i was like this i'm gonna do something yeah this is a plant and if you have a problem with it then like you got a problem with me <laughs> because like i was so done <laughs> Yeah, I think what it is, sometimes, you know, you being a doctor yourself, you know, doctors do all the training. And, and then for some doctors, it's very hard for a patient to tell them what they think they could be because they're kind of like, well, what do you know? You know, I, I'm the one that did the training. And I think that's hard, you know, on both sides, because the patient might have a very good point. You know, I read something the other day about a woman who told her doctor, you know, she was having these strange feelings in, in her stomach or something. And he was telling her it was one thing, but she was convinced there was another. And after four months, she found out she was right. But it was cancer that had moved on by four months. So as a person, as a patient, as a doctor, when someone's telling you what you feel in your gut, it's really difficult, isn't it? And, and you kind of, you know, you have to push, you have to be strong and you have to say, I don't care what you say. I want a second opinion or I want you to check again. Yeah. I, and honestly, like now I deal with a lot of families and I see that their journeys are very similar to mine and it's scary. Um, and I. They all feel really bad pushing. And you know what? I'm always the first one to say no. If you think there's something wrong, there's something wrong. You know, and even when I see the residents in emergency now, I'm like, if there's a parent here that thinks there's something wrong, 
you really better be sure there's nothing wrong. Like, you know, I think that there's something in a mom that knows if there's a problem with their kid. Um, you know, it, it's just there's something to that. And I don't think we should ignore it. For you, when you were told, you know, because one thing that struck me is very powerful in that um, documentary, when they were kept asking you the question about resuscitating him, you know, that's a, a very hard and powerful question to ask a mother or father is to say, you know, do you want us to continue? You know, do you want us to? And you're kind of the first reaction is, well, of course, I mean, of course. But then they're like, yeah, but maybe he won't have quality of life and, you know, this kind of thing. So. When you get to that situation, it's it's kind of like Russian roulette, isn't it? It's um, you're like, there's no other option but to fire the gun. And for you, like when you got to that last resort where you did try the CBD, I'm sure your mind must have been going crazy. Like, you know, you, you're in medicine. All the available options to you don't seem to work. So what the hell do you do? No, it was definitely... Um you know, we went in and like Nicholas at that time was just going in and out of seizures all the time. Um, and it wasn't, they're not full like grand mal seizures. They're like, he's present, he's not, he's like choking. Like he had a lot of um, like choking and vomiting seizures and, and like, you never knew if he was really there or not. Um, you know, and his neurologist said, look, like, we're going to have to talk about whether you not you want him resuscitated. Um, you know, and, and so, you know, we had that conversation and I don't actually remember anything but those words. Um, you know, I went home and that's when I quit my job because I thought, you know what, I'm I'm not going to go and like go to work and my kid's going to die. Right. And then I started going online and looking for anything. And that's how I found the, the story of Charlotte Figgy. Um, and, you know, at that point, I went to my doc, my neurologist, who was great. Like my this is a new neurologist. She's she's been great. And I said, you know, is there an option for trying cannabis and she said she said jen like at this time she was it, it might work but i can't help you and i i was like well like she said there are kids in the community that are on you know things and i said well how do i do that she's like well you have to find a family doctor who's an expert in epilepsy and cannabis to help you and i can't do i can't help you do that that's a tough one because the use of cannabis through the years has been a recreational drug and, you know, but it's always been considered like a gateway drug to other drugs. And, you know, in some countries they have, the laws are not as strict and they, you know, they're more loose, but it's quite interesting now the way, you know, America itself has, the United States rather has moved, you know, with legalizing cannabis. So going back to that time, I know maybe they've changed now, but going back to that time, which was maybe like what, 2016, 2017, what were the actual laws in Canada as regards medicinal cannabis? So medicinal cannabis has actually been legal since 2001. Um, you know, it's evolved over the years. In 2018, it was actually our recreational cannabis that became legal. So, um, you know, despite the fact that it was legal medicinally, you still needed a doctor to um, authorize it. Um, and most doctors wouldn't. And, and, you know, I teach a lot of doctors now about cannabis and most of them still have no clue um, and don't even know what 2018 was, you know, and, and they don't know how to authorize cannabis. They don't know anything about it, um, which is sad. And they don't even know the pharmaceuticals that are the synthetic forms of cannabis that they're like giving out. 
right like alone we have and and they're like oh that's that's thc like yeah you're your patient like of course they have no you're making them high how about we try a plan like that's the confusing thing for a lot of people because they say okay there's cannabis cannabis oil cbd uh, cbd without thc and it it gets quite confusing because you know they're thinking Oh, is, does that mean there's drugs in this? Or and they said, no, you don't get the effects, the potent effects, but you get the medicinal. So there's still a lot of educating for people, isn't there? Absolutely. Yeah. It's terrible, isn't it? That when there is something there, the laws of the land are prohibiting it just because of bureaucracy. And you know what I mean? It's a shame. Yeah. No, I think um, that was that's been the biggest frustration because, you know, I think if we're talking about kids lives, I mean, this is this is a right. This is the right to live. Right. And we're obstructing that right with a plant. It's just bizarre, you know, and and part of the reason I think that I really, you know, am glad to tell our story in the film is that, you know, every single person that watches it, um, has a different perspective. And, you know, it doesn't matter if it's been like a government, like somebody that works in the government or education or wherever, they they literally have a completely transformed view and they start asking, how, what can we do to help? And I think that just viewing the story and, and it's not just my story, it's three other ones and seeing how it affects the families and what it means um, it really affects other things that they do. So, you know, if it's a government, like someone that works in government, maybe the next time they come across a cannabis law or something, they'll think of the kids. They'll think, oh, you know, so and and not to say that adult stories can't do that. But I think, you know, when we start to talk about kids lives and and how, you know, kid, these kids have no options, then I think that we really can start to make some progress. Do you believe that, especially in Canada and the United States, do you believe that the delay in making cannabis legal and, you know, it was considered like a street drug, do you think that was a lot to do with the pharmaceutical companies and the cigarette companies as well, having control over, you know, those? Because when we think of drugs in modern society, we think of, you know, we think of like potent drugs and narcotics, but alcohol is a drug, cigarettes are drugs, you know, and, and nowadays, I mean, especially in the United States, there's so many kind of painkillers and, and drugs that are highly addictive that people use all the time, but are licensed. And yet they look at this natural product, which is cannabis, and they say, no, that's dangerous for the population. It's more about someone making money and somebody trying to control the whole narrative, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, I think there's enough evidence out there now that um, you don't have to look very far to see the politics and the history of cannabis, but also in, in psychedelics. You know, um, there's a lot of books that I've read uh, just talking about even how the governments use these these and research these things for years and there's on them to prevent them from being used. Right. And so I think there is a lot of evidence that that there's an agenda uh, that involves not only politics, but pharmaceutical companies to try to restrict access. A lot of drugs come from some kind of natural source, you know, because they're, they're, years ago you would have the old wives' tales about drugs and, you know, you have, you have all of these old books, almanacs with cures for things. So, of course, then as the years went on, drug companies used these, but then made them more synthetic and were able to amplify the production of this. But 
a lot of drugs nowadays, I suppose, are synthetic, but they have a source that comes from some kind of plant. And the thing is that cannabis, as it is, has always been kind of pushed to the back of the closet because I don't know, is it because it was more readily available and people could grow it themselves and then it's harder to control? What do you think are the reasons like that the governments in most countries are really afraid of with cannabis? Um, well, I don't know about outside of North America, but I do know that there was a lot of interactions with the pulp and paper industry because hemp was such a great natural resource. Um, you know, and I think that hemp can be used for almost everything, you know, and I think that the paper industry was really threatened and there's a lot of, you know, okay. about that interaction. Um but, you know, I think um, there's there's multi like tons of layers to that. And, and I'm not sure about other countries and, and why things have been uh, restricted in, like, say, Europe, for example, other than just the situation of it. So let's go back when you were at that last resort and you, you know, were facing Nicholas dying and, and, you know, being asked, did you want to resuscitate him? So for you then, when I think in the documentary, you, you, a friend introduced you to give you some CBD as well. So was it something that you thought, I'm going to just try this, but I'm not knowing what the effects would be and how amazed were you by the effect? You know, to be honest, I was just at the end. I didn't actually think it was going to work. I went and, you know, I had a friend who'd been um, cause at that time, no one looked at it. It was a hemp product. I had Charlotte's web and it was a hemp product and, you know, um, it was being moved across the border a lot. A lot of people were using it. My friend was using it for her autistic child and it wasn't really helping. And so, you know, I started to talk about the fact that I would wanted to explore cannabis on my blog and she messaged me and said, you know what, Jen, I have a couple bottles. Like, do you want to try one? So I think I paid like $200 for this like little 30 ml bottle and, I got that. Yeah, they're very expensive. Yeah, I, I had no clue how to dose it, but I literally gave him one drop um, in his mouth because I was worried. I didn't know what I was doing and I had no guidance. Um, and he slept the whole night. And I mean, I was checking on him all night because he never slept the whole night. I don't remember the last time we slept. Um, you know, and the next day he had seizures and I didn't really think much of it. But, you know, two more nights in a row, he slept the whole night. You know, and then it started to become super obvious that there was a change happening. And, uh, you know, it was probably, yeah, in week week two that people started mentioning. And even I had a respite person and she was like, Jen, like, there's something different. This is actually making a difference. So, you know, in his daycare was like, well, what are you doing? Like, why is he different? <laughs> Anyways. And so, I mean, I went and I, I called neurology because they told me, you know, just let us know if you start it. So I phoned them and I said, okay, like this is happening. He's not seizing. Like he's not, he's not up at night. He's a different kid. He's brighter and he's interacting with the kids at daycare. Um, you know, and everyone's noticing a difference and we didn't stop anything else. Like we didn't, he was still on his seizure medications, but he like came alive. Cause I know a lot of parents, uh, feel the same way that the kids on seizure medications, they kind of become zombies. They're so not and it was amazing how he just almost woke up and he just became present and and without stopping anything else um and so yeah and then neurology's uh answer was that you know they're like well who's giving it to you and that started a 
issue, right? So anyway, and that's all they cared about. They only cared about like whether or not I was giving it to them legally. So yeah. Yeah, and that's shame, isn't it? Because it's kind of like if you said, you know, I found this magic mushroom and it cured my father's illness and they're like, yeah, but where did you get it? And you're like, yeah, that's not important. It's what, look what it did. And they're like, yeah, but that's illegal. And it's kind of like, why are we looking at things like this? Because you're not telling me that's illegal because you think it's dangerous. You're telling me it's illegal because you're afraid you'll get in trouble or somebody will get in trouble and somebody has to take responsibility. Whereas the responsibility and, you know, the in, in essence, I suppose, the blame for doing this is with the parents because the parents go, I want to try it. I'm in a situation where I feel that as a last resort, I have to try this. So please you know, waive these rights about illegality and stuff. Because, I mean, imagine it would have been the worst case for you if if Nicholas had passed away and you never got to try it and you never would know. And that's what it comes down to, right? Um, it does not work for every kid. But should we restrict it when they have no other options? Um, you know, and I, I always thought that if a, if a parent's going to bury their kid, they need to exhaust every option that's reasonable. And, you know, cannabis is totally reasonable. And, you know, I think from from early on, like I grew up in uh, an environment where there was a lot of drugs. I mean, my neighbors were always smoking weed, you know, and but that was like the the benign sort of drug. You know, my neighbor's mom died of a heroin overdose when my friend was like eight. Right. Like, you know, those were the hard drugs. So. You know, what I've noticed with, you know, when I went to med school and that is a lot of doctors have no interaction with any drugs. So they don't even anything to base it on. Whereas I was like, this is just weed, like, like my brothers, weed, like, and they for their back pain and, you know, like, um, it, it just wasn't foreign to me. So then I was so frustrated that they were restricting something that was obviously really helping my son. Um, and it just made no sense. And I, I just decided that was not an answer. <laughs> like I was not accepting that. I was just, yeah. And, and because of the it's a stigma, isn't it? It totally is. Yeah. Now, even I remember growing up and, you know, um, as I'm a musician, you would always be around weed. Someone would be smoking it. And, you know, it's a very natural thing and it's, it never, of course, you can see the bad side when somebody does too much of anything. I mean, this is the situation. I've known one or two people who, you know, they will tell you even out to this day and say, oh, I used to smoke too much weed. And it was basically them kind of saying they had nothing else going on in their life. And that's just what they did every day. And that, that didn't help them with that momentum to, to change their life, you know. So it's like alcohol. It's like any type of drugs. You have to moderate it. And you have to know is too, when is too much. But the thing about it is weed as a natural drug is, has been in our society. It's prevalent in all cultures. And why, if the people can use it for those social occasions and it's considered, ah, oh, it's fun, why can we not use it in those situations which are we know medicinally it works? Absolutely. And, you know, if we're going to vilify weed, then why aren't we doing that to alcohol? Because alcohol yes, is so much exactly. more damage, right? Yeah, of course, of course. And that, you see, it's all the agenda of the, the companies. You know, they, they say this drug is dangerous and it's a gateway, but this drug is okay because it's just a relaxing drink with your friends and family. They don't talk about, 
the overexposure to alcohol, the advertising, all of these things. So it's it's something, yeah, that society has a lot to be blamed for as regards, you know, what is acceptable, what's not acceptable, the stigma of using certain drugs, you know. And nowadays, I remember a few, you know, it was last year, actually, I did a podcast on the cocaine culture in Ireland amongst young people. And it's amazing how much that cocaine culture has moved into the rural areas, you know. So you have young farmers and housewives doing cocaine. And the thing about it is, it's not, it's not that you can stop them. Like in America right now, you have a huge fentanyl problem. It's to educate people. It's to tell them what bad things can come from it or how to do it properly, how to get help if you go too much. So I think with anything, with cannabis, with drugs, with alcohol, it's all about education, isn't it? Absolutely. Because, you know, I think the biggest gateway drug is actually like Tylenol 3s and morphine. and <laughs> Wow. You yes. know who's giving those out? The doctors. Yes, yes, yes. You would believe how many patients I see that, you know, started on to opioids because they had a surgery and their doctor just gave them 50 T3s. But no one talks about that. So the actual gateway drugs are actually when we just give out these other medications that patients really don't need, um, you know, because they might need something for pain post-op. Right. And I, I know there are there is a place for them. There's always a place for them. I work in emergency. I use opioids only in emergency. I haven't given out an opioid prescription in like 10 years. Um, and if I did and I'm forgetting, it was to a palliative patient because I was in the ER and they were in a pain crisis and they were dying. Yes. yes. That's the only situation. So all of my patients do really well with no opioids. And yeah. And and, you know, the, cannabis as an as an aside a lot of them they come off opioids they go on to cannabis and uh they go back to work and they function they actually choose to pay for their cannabis and get rid of all of their government paid drugs so that's a lot it's amazing isn't it because that term gateway drug always looks at going into like if you imagine a gateway going into a field it's like that gateway is leading into harder drugs, but they never talk about it, the gateway leading out of the field. They never talk about how it also can get people off those other things. Because nowadays, I think what it is, people know if I'm on all these opioids and different drugs and I use cannabis, they're probably going to use it in a much more educated way yeah, to, to help them wean off whatever they're using before. So then, you know, when you noticed the change in Nicholas and then it started, you know, you you probably then thought to yourself, OK, so I see a change in him. But how do I make this like a regular dosage? How do I do it in such a way that I know how much I'm giving him every week? Or how did you learn more about this kind of thing? Did you have to educate yourself or were you able to get in touch with experts in this field? So there wasn't a lot available when I had Nicholas at that age. Um, so. You know, I I basically carried on with my one drop of Charlotte's Web twice a day um, for a few years, and it actually worked really well. And then we started to decline in the spring of 2017. And, uh, you know, at that time, there was another doctor uh, from another part of Canada that was doing a talk in Winnipeg. And, you know, uh, I had a friend who was like, you really need to go see this doctor. And I was exhausted. I really didn't want to. But anyways, I agreed to. 
And honestly, that was a pivotal moment for me because when we started talking about dosing, that's what introduced me to the idea that we would dose it per kilo. And we actually started putting it through his G-tube because, um, you know, we felt like it would be better absorbed and mixing it with some of his formula um, because he used G-tube fed formula. So anyway, um, prior to that, the weeks leading up to that, we were in the ER a lot and he was turning blue and just we were just spiraling again and the doctors had tried a lot of different things and he was getting loaded with this and that. And then the minute we tried, we switched everything and I redosed him uh, through his weight and put it through his G tube, everything stopped. And so, you know, up to that point, I had been asked to maybe see some kids at a local clinic and, and I'd said, no, like I'm taking my wrist on my own kid. I'm not going to like, I need my license. I got to pay the bills. Right. Um, Anyways, and I didn't have it all figured out. I wasn't going to play with other kids. So anyways, after that, I started rethinking everything. And I thought, you know what? This could work, you know, and I could do, I could basically see these kids develop a treatment plan based on their weight and, you know, follow them closely. And I had, and then I started pulling papers from Israel and getting my dosing and, you know, that's kind of what started everything. I started seeing kids in the fall of 2017. You know, it's a funny thing when you go to a doctor, let's say, and they say, oh, you have back pain. Okay. They give you medicine. But if you're like, should I go to a chiropractor? Maybe they're kind of like, well, and sometimes they're, they're very reluctant to send you for alternative medicines because it's not in their, it's not in their area. And I always, I'm always amazed by this because, you know, I go sometimes myself for acupuncture and I find it works very well for me. But, It's great when you get a doctor who says, listen, if this doesn't work, because I'm going to give you some drugs, but listen, try this, try acupuncture, try chiropractor, try whatever, you know, works for you. And I think in that sense, for you being a doctor and then moving into this field and educating yourself, you probably had some kickback from other people in in like general medical practitioners who, who maybe didn't agree with you or your superiors even who are kind of like, yeah, but that's not in your training or whatever. So how how did you get around the whole, you know, being licensed to practice that type of medicine? So fortunately in Canada with licensing, there's no specific doctor that is allowed to or not allowed to um, in general. But there are groups, for example, our neurology group has sort of a general rule because of this in- institution that they're not allowed to touch it. Um, but as a family doctor, you really have a lot of flexibility. And so I had no problems with that. Yes, I had a lot of colleagues that were dead set against it. And I got a lot of hate and I still do. Um, You know, it has been very difficult, but I've basically taken the approach that I just keep to myself. I do my thing. I make sure that I have solid treatment plans and that I follow my patients really well. And I write letters back to their doctors. So now what had started as me just seeing these kids. Now I actually only work by referral and I'm getting referrals from tons of different types of doctors. And when they start referring, they keep referring, which tells me that they like the service. So I've just basically created a subspecialty where I look after all these people, but I also, I offer to help those doctors. So my approach is I can help you help your patient, or if you don't want to, I can do it. And honestly, cannabis has become more complex. So it's actually become better for like a specialty uh, to do it instead because it's 
it's the more we learn about it, the more you have to have experience in working with it. And so, you know, that's what kind of what I've done. But yes, I've had a lot of heat to work through. Um, and it, it's just comes with the territory. But I think because I grew up differently, my whole my whole like career has been different. I just I know at the end of the day that when I what I'm doing is making a big difference. My patients love it. My days with my patients are the best. I see all the patients everyone doesn't want to see all the chronic pains and everything and they get better and they come back and they're so excited. And I just, I feel so regenerated and, and just like energized when I talk to them. Yeah. So that's really nice. And the great thing about that is because, you know, you had your regular medical career and all of the education and the training you've done afterwards has been added onto it. So it would be a great thing for modern young doctors who are training right now. And I don't know if this is happening or it will happen, that they would add this training into the syllabus. Because, you know, I suppose being a doctor, you're trained to examine and then, you know, to to make a diagnosis and to dispense or to prescribe drugs they may need. So why not being able to prescribe, you know, CBD oil? Why not? It's a it's a medicine, no? Absolutely. And actually, I do a lot of the teaching for the uh, the residents and um, other doctors um, constantly kind of doing different things and uh, being asked to do ground rounds and things like that for lots of the specialties too. So it is happening. It's happening here. Um, and I think in another, a few other places in Canada as well, but, and the residents want it, you know, they, they love our sessions because I bring all the different kinds of weed and we talk about this and that, and we talk about what is a gram joint. This is one, you know, <laughs> you know, and I wow, let them wow. like see it all. I'm like, this is what it is. It's a plant, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. they're just like, Oh my God. <laughs> Because we talked earlier about the stigma, you know, of people smoking weed. And I've heard people say, they'd say, oh, I'm taking cannabis. And someone might say, oh, you're smoking the doobies. And they'd say, no, 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 no. It's medicinal. It's, it's you know, it's it's in a jar. It's oil or whatever. And they're like, oh, and but so you wouldn't smoke the joints. And they'd be like, oh, no, no, no. I no, I Because, you know, of course, they, they feel like there has to be a difference in one. One is recreational and the other is medicinal. So how does that kind of world mix in now? Because do you get patients who say to you, no, no, I want to smoke it? Or do you get more patients who want to take it by drops and so on? Um, well, I get like, I guess because things have changed in Canada and now recreational is legal. You know, initially it was, um, you know, patients that, um, you know, weren't using at all. But now we get patients that are smoking and now they're asking about, how to use it more medicinally. And and generally people that are smoking weed, a lot of them are using it for a purpose, like either for pain, depression, sleep. Or to go to sleep or yes. Yeah, so a lot of times now my practice is more bringing, uh, like working with patients, figuring out their goals and trying to help them achieve that with uh, health, uh, like risk reduction. So, so a lot of times introducing oral products to try to reduce the smoking. Right. Um, but a lot of times patients are, are going to get and try some cannabis before they come to me, um, you know, and then they ask their doctor and then we kind of work together. But, you know, the recreational um, uh, legalization has really allowed people to not have such a stigma about trying it because there's like dispensaries everywhere. 
I suppose it's a bit different in Europe because it's not legalized here. And so, yeah, in some places, I know it's it's semi-legalized and so on. But the thing is, it's quite interesting. I just have this picture, you know, of maybe a patient going to you and saying, no, no, I'd like to smoke it, but doctor, I need you to teach me how to roll a joint. Like, do you ever have that situation? Well, I have really tried to learn how to roll joints, but I just still don't have that skill. Yeah. And I've never really had to teach anyone how to roll a joint. Most of them know how, so yeah. Yeah, that that would be an interesting one because you're like, well, maybe that's not in my job spectrum. Maybe you need to go to the dispensary or buy a rolling machine. But you can see, obviously, you know, the humor in this aspect as well because looking from different perspectives, because now, you know, because it's legalized, it's easier to talk openly about it. But you see in Europe and other countries where it's not legalized, People have to be very careful with the medicinal side of it. Or, you know, it's it's like you, you couldn't go to the doctor and be saying, oh, well, I, no, but I'd like to smoke it. And he's like, well, no, no, you should take it as CBD drops, you know, because for them, they're kind of limited when it's not legalized in the country. They're limited by what they can say too, aren't they? Yeah. I mean, I don't work in those systems, but I do see the frustration. Um, yeah. I think having the legalization has been pivotal um, because... I think my approach even has changed. I don't tell people to stop smoking. I know that's probably people hate that, but I don't because, I mean, does that help with anything? No, like tell someone to stop drinking, tell someone to stop. Yeah. But I do encourage other sort, other forms. And what I, I do is I, I, a lot of them, they come back and they're like, you know what? I really don't want to, um, I don't want to harm my lungs, you know, so I'm going to really work towards trying more oral. With the documentary, anything can happen. So. Where did that idea come from to make the documentary? Did the filmmaker approach you and then, or was it your idea? Or Tell us about that process. So when we started seeing kids in 2017, um, you know, I was terrified. Honestly, I was worried about losing my license, but at the same time, I couldn't, I couldn't say no to these parents because if they were like a Nicholas, um, like I was going to be saving these lives. Right. And I just couldn't, I couldn't, allow other families to not have an option because I didn't have an option. And I was pretty much the only person that could provide that option. Um, so, you know, we started doing that and we started seeing them get better and they were dramatic. Like some of the kids were stopped teasing and they'd been everywhere. They'd been on tons of medications and they just changed and the autistic kids started just becoming better. And actually one of them is in the film. That was one of my pivotal kids that was just so striking you know he was not functional and like the mom wrote me this big letter and I was in tears anyways so the the manager of the the clinic that I was in she was like you know we really got to tell these stories and so anyways it randomly she knew somebody who was doing uh getting into film production and had worked for the news and different things and was looking for a project. And so anyways, we kind of just met and I, we met over beers and I told him kind of about what I was doing and our idea and stuff. And I didn't really think much of it. I didn't know if he was excited about it or whatever, but anyways, decided he was going to come out to our cottage and, you know, and um, meet again. And he came out and he was like, had the whole plan. He had everybody all lined up and, um, no, he was so excited. And honestly, I couldn't have asked for a better person to do the film. He just presented it so well. I had no idea until I saw the end, um, you know, how good he did in doing it. So, yeah, 
Yeah, no, he did a good job. It's really good. And, and it's, you know, it gets the message across. And, you know, and, and it's it, these kind of movies are hard as well because you see what parents have to go through. But then you see there is a light at the end of the tunnel. So it was nice. It was I enjoyed it. And, um, you know, from that documentary, I'm sure it opened up lots more doors for you as well as regards, you know, other people wanting to hear your story and other people's story from the documentary. I know that uh, it's in a lot of film festivals and everything. So how have the responses been to the movie so far? Um, you know, the responses have been amazing. I think it's just been trying to get it out there. That's been a uh, struggle. So it was in a lot of the film festivals last year, um, you know, and then finally we're able to get it onto Amazon in the States um, initially, the plan was to just roll it out in the UK and Canada as well once we got the French subtitles. But then to my understanding is that Amazon is really looking to see how popular it's going to be in the States and looking for the reviews and that. So the more reviews we can get and the more people watching it, the more of the chance it's going to be on other uh, in other countries on Amazon. You know, I was talking to Dr. Jen and we were talking about how European listeners can maybe watch this movie. So... I mean, hopefully, maybe sometime soon it might be released. But if it's not, you can take the multivitamin V plus P plus N and maybe you can catch this movie on Amazon.com, you know? Who knows? Because there are ways around things, but we're not going to tell you exactly how, but it is possible to see it. Or just write Amazon and tell them you want you want it on in the UK. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Just... That's it. Just kind of put your pen to paper, you know. And one thing as well, Dr. Jen said to me was, if you do go to Amazon.com and you manage to be able to watch the movie, make sure you leave a review because the more reviews the movie gets and the more people speak about it, then there's a bigger chance it will spread its wings across Europe. Isn't that so? Absolutely. And, you know, we did share the film at um, a, a cannabis patients conference in the in England last November. And it just breaks my heart to see the kids in England. And, you know, another thing that I would really love to do is, you know, gather sort of momentum to really advocate for kids' right to live. And, you know, maybe that goes to the UN, you know, because this is not acceptable in any country. You know, these kids don't have options. This is a plant, you know, and it is changing lives and it can save lives. So these parents deserve to try it. It's a right to live. I have this picture in my mind as regards it opening doors for you, even in Europe and in the Middle East and other places, because I think literally without you realizing it, you could become an ambassador for this worldwide. And because you've put the time and you've had the personal experience into this. So, you know, who there's no better spokesperson than you to educate the rest of the world and maybe change the cannabis laws in some countries, even if it's medicinal. I mean, I think this is a very valuable thing you have right now. It's like a, it's a secret weapon, I think, that you possess and that will open doors for other families across the world, no? Absolutely. And I'm always looking for opportunities to do that. Um, you know, and I get I get emails that are heartbreaking from kids in lots of different countries, even most recently, um, sort of in um, a, an area that people go to jail if they say the word. And they are, you know, it's it's heartbreaking. You know, these families are are desperate and going to huge measures to try to get um, to get medicine um, and to get 
just cannabis um, to their kids. And a lot of them are with brain cancers, um, you know, and being reading these emails and I don't even want to respond because it, I would get banned from these countries. Right. I research um, countries and I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, like I, I, I don't. Yeah. So. Yeah, you, you don't want to write something and one day be picked up at the airport for not knowing not what for, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Because I like to see the humor and everything. I have to imagine that when you showed the movie, the first screening, people were able to go outside and have a joint and celebrate, no? <laughs> um, The very first time, no. Um, uh, yeah, no. Our... I'm sure it happened somewhere. <laughs> But just in, in England, it was because it was a patient's conference. So that was probably the only one where I actually saw that. But I mean, I have nothing against it at all. But um, most of our, our screenings here have been with the families and different things. We had an event where we had a, a bunch of the different families talk and my kids as well. And they watched the film and we were able to like, yeah, it, it was great. That's cool. That's nice. So let's move on then to your that contribution to, you know, the courage in cannabis. So that title, which is very nice, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. Explain what that means to us. So, you know, back in 2017, I had just been through so much, um, you know, looking at my life in general, I just gone through a terrible divorce. I just been through um, everything with Nicholas. And then he was like dying. And I, my life was just a mess, <laughs> just in terms of like, I had nothing, like everything has, was turned upside down. And, you know, that, that uh, saying actually was written in pottery, like on a cup that my cousin gave me. And it really just spoke to me at that time. And I did get a tattoo that is on Oh, very nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely. And I love, I love Hawaii and I loved, um, you know, I had gone there a few times and done surf lessons. That was something that I had decided that I wanted to take up. And so that's kind of where it came from. Um, and honestly, like, I guess that's life, you know, you can't stop the waves, but you know, if you learn how to surf, then, you know, it's, it, it makes life a whole lot easier. Yeah, it's it, it's a nice saying. It all it's kind of like that, you know, saying it's better to be a, a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a in a war. You know, it's kind of be ready for it. Like you you're going to be involved in these things. You're going to be a in like in the waves. So why not learn to use them and enjoy them? No, absolutely. You know, that's just the story of my whole entire life, basically. So that's where it came from. Wow, that's really cool. And so now, how do you manage your time between, for example, your medical practice, your advocacy work, your contributing to literature, all of these things, and looking after Nicholas? How do you manage to do all of this? Super mom. You know, it's a day-to-day -day thing. I work full-time emergency, which is super flexible, um, you know, to some extent. So I, that means I only work, you know, under 15 uh, shifts a month and I can move them around. Um, I'm constantly sort of battling with childcare just because Nicholas is so high needs, um, you know, and then I do a clinic uh, and I do that two days a week out of a local clinic by my house where I see a lot of consults. And then usually if I'm, I'm doing advocacy in lots of different ways through podcasts, contributing to books, I love going to speak in different places. So, but generally that has to be kind of like a three to six months away for me to book it. So yeah. And, and I'm always just looking for things that are um, beneficial and influential um, because 
Um, I'm, I'm here to sort of make a difference in this path. I think this is what I've been called to do. Um, and it gives me a lot of energy to do that. So I, I don't rely on it for my income. Um, I do my eMERGE work, but I, I really focus my energy on just making a difference and asking myself that question all the time, is what I'm doing making the biggest difference? You know, and I'm, I'm in a spot right now where I'm reassessing a, a, a lot of different opportunities and just looking to see where my voice is and what I'm supposed to do. You know, I know for me, when I saw your story and the work you were doing, that kind of thing interests me because sometimes... You know, I've had other guests on with other issues that maybe they couldn't get their voice heard as much or, or the people aren't talking about it in the public forum. So those kind of things interest me because I'm thinking even if you can bring that story to another audience or you can show them what's happening in another country. I mean, those are those are the things that we need to do. We need to sh educate people. We need to make them aware. We need to, to kind of show what's happening in other places. And for me, looking at the work you're doing, I was like, yeah, I really want to share this story with my audience, you know? Absolutely. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yes, it's great. And so when you like look at the future of cannabinoid medicine in, in general, what do you kind of see happening? Do you think that you're at the peak of it now? Or do you think, you know, because it's been made legal? Or do you think that it will become a more mainstream medicine in the future? How do you see it kind of progressing from here? I think that we're only at the beginning. Um, there is so much research going into cannabinoids now and so much more uh, knowledge, even in different cannabinoids, um, you know, that I think it is really going to take a bigger role in medicine and, and other physicians and healthcare workers are not going to be able to run away from it. Um, it is so life-changing that, you know, the patients speak for themselves. Um, you know, it, it can change so many lives. And it's not just this, it's even psychedelics, like, you know, so many plants that have so many medicinal properties. And, you know, lately, I've really started to notice that even the patient population is changing, they want more natural things. They want a wide spectrum of things. You're talking about chiropractor and acupuncture. You know, the, the number one thing that my patients say to me is, you're not against all that? And I said, no, I'm not against all at all. Because I said, you know what, we all have different perspectives. And in order for a patient to take care of themselves, you know, they really need all the perspectives. So why would I um, talk about somebody else who's providing a different perspective? Because, and what I tell my patients is like, I don't learn about that stuff in medical school. I try to learn about it now, but, you know, I think that they have an essential component to contribute and patients get better. That's the end of the, at the end of the day, if the patient's getting better and they're happy and they're paying for the service um, and they keep going back, who am I to say if it's not working, right? Like, and so I feel like when you give patients that, they actually become so much more free to explore things on their own. They actually value your opinion more. And, you know, I just say, I'm just here to help you on your journey. And if that involves, great, I can help you with that. I can help you with some traditional medicine too. But, and I'm, you know, and I'm always about helping them explore other things like bioresonance is big now, acupuncture. I think they're all fascinating, you know, our bodies are made of energy. So, you know, 
medicine is a funny thing because, you know, we talk about the placebo effect and we talk about all of these things that can change how our positivity is. And so I, I think there's room to try all of these things. But it's amazing when you look at Nicholas and other children like him, the dramatic change that CBD oil has made to them and cannabis in itself. It's just amazing because the, where you can see you were at the edge of the cliff looking over thinking there's no way back. We can't we have to go over. And then once you did, it wasn't a fast descent. It was a slow descent where you got to realize what was good for you. Absolutely. I think that's great. Just lastly, then, before I let you go, how is Nicholas now? He's 11 now. So how is he at the moment? How is his condition and everything? He's doing really well. You know, he barely ever has seizures. Um, you know, he does go through little blips. And I actually think there's probably his growth spurts and stuff. Um, or if tired you know just like any kid that has seizures he'll have them if he's tired or if he's got a stressor right he's sick or something but he doesn't get sick he was the healthiest all of us had covid the kids with cannabis didn't get very sick with covid which is amazing no no wow in your too i was hearing when i was there so you know what we spend a lot of time at the lake right now because i've just always focused on that in the summer because you know after almost losing your child you know that's my highest priority is I'm with him because I don't know how much how long he has but no he wants to like wakeboard and be like out behind the boat I bought him this board that's like for like you know higher needs wow oh yeah he's on the back he's like I want to I want a wakeboard I'm like oh my god like it's so hard to let him do everything he actually just did a one hour horseback ride uh, and he was on his own horse and they trotted and was able to hold on and he was actually shifting himself to uh, make sure that he was um, uh, like proper on the horse. And that's amazing. Like, yeah, like to, for him to be able to balance and to shift himself is like incredible. Yeah. That's really nice to hear. And it's it's great to hear he's come a long way. He's progressed and, and he's he's got another chance at life because when you were considering when he was four and five and so on, and you probably weren't sure how much time he had left. But now when you see him and he's 11 and he's living life and he's enjoying life and you can see a really good future for him, that's lovely to see. Yeah, you know, I didn't think he was going to make the next summer, um, you know, which is why I jumped because I thought I was losing him. Wow, that yeah, and that's really strong because when you look back on that and you see how far both of you have come, whether it's his him through his illness and through you, you through your education, you know. So I want to thank you for coming on. It's been a pleasure chatting to you, and it's lovely to hear about your journey through this. and And I hope we can help other people make some decisions as regards what they want to do and to push to push in the right direction to you know, make their child's lives better or anybody's lives, not just children, but anybody who could benefit from cannabis and CBD oil and all of these things. So thank you very much, Dr. Jennifer Anderson, for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Jennifer Anderson, for coming on the show and sharing your story about your life and Nicholas's life and how CBD oil has helped you in your journey to Nicholas recovery. It's wonderful to hear all the details of the story. And when we look at the illegality of cannabis oil in modern medicine, it's crazy to still think this happens, especially when it could help people like Nicholas and other people and all the other children, Emma, Jane, Levi, all the other kids in the story. So thank you for sharing your section of it. And thank you for coming on 
the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. And we hope in the future, everything goes great for you and Nicholas. So thank you very much, Dr. Jennifer Anderson. And thank you, the listener, for coming on to another episode of the Collective Whisper podcast with me, your host, Simon Kay. We look forward to having you on the next time. And like I said in the beginning, please share, subscribe and follow the show. Okay, until the next time, take care of yourself, your friends and your family. From me, bye-bye.